the group benefits industry has changed quite dramatically over the last 20 to 30 years. And in the last 10 years, that change has accelerated even more. Doran Forbes is an accomplished leader in the insurance industry with over 30 years of experience. He has held senior leader positions with insurance carriers as well as reinsurance providers. And he was the founder and CEO of West, one of Western Canada's leading independent group benefit consulting firms. He has a passion to build exceptionally strong, high-performing teams and is driven by education consultation, focusing on customer needs, innovation, and entrepreneurship. Don holds a Bachelor of Business Administration degree from University of Regina and currently lives in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. I hope you enjoyed this session as much as I did. Darwin, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's really good to have you here. Thanks, David. Nice to join you. Awesome. So first question, right into it. How did you get your start in the business? Actually, let, let me reverse that. Let's just talk about where, where you, a little bit about what you built up to, how you ended up in the business, where you ended in the business, and then we'll go back to the beginning. Okay. Um, it, it sort of started... Um, Working in the insurance industry uh, from the carrier side, it, it led me to a little bit of an understanding that I might have a, a different view or some some different uh, level of entrepreneurship than what the insurance industry uh, carriers maybe had. And so we ended up uh, starting our benefits consulting firm, uh, running that for many number of years, uh, ultimately doing an equity transaction. And we can certainly talk about some of the details, equity transaction to exit the, that business and ultimately moved on to uh, into the to the reinsurance side for a while, and that's sort of where you and I ended up meeting, and that's sort of uh, where we are today. Awesome. So then, so so you built up you built up a practice. Okay. So so then you started with the carriers, which is an interesting way to get into it. So when when was that? Was that uh, what kind of era with our industry? So I started in the uh, got licensed in 1993. Uh, at that time, uh, Crown Life was moving from Toronto to Regina. Uh, I ended up getting introduced to them uh, at that time, came in as a, a sales representative, uh, ended up very quickly being independent. Uh, Crown moved their sales office to uh, essentially independent brokers at that time. Lots of consolidation and mergers, as you can remember, through the, the 90s it was was taking place. So I spent the first number of years as an independent broker and then ultimately joined one of the insurance companies and moved in uh, up to their senior uh, management team really gave me the opportunity to learn a lot about different aspects of the insurance business. So not just, you know, the sales end of it, but certainly the contracting, the client administration, the the reinsurance, the the underwriting, the pricing, all that that, that goes into it. Um, and, and spent a number of years in that side, learning the business from the carrier perspective, uh, ultimately then allowing me to, to take that step, move independent, start our own consulting firm with just a different um a different focus where I really wanted to do unique, different value added and, and move in a, in a quicker direction than some of the carriers maybe were, but it would allow us to again, take what they do well, pick the products, pick the services, and then put it in front of our clients. So that's really the impetus for us to, to start the um, consulting firm was really just to, to do a different job for the clients and build a, a, a product um, shelf and a, a service shelf in a little different way than we could do as an independent a single carrier. So I'm, I'm not sure you know how to phrase the question, but or to put it across. But 
there, there would have been at the time that point in the in the industry and in, in the works in our workspace there were certain pain points that clients were experiencing um what were those first pain points that you found that gave you an opportunity as an advisor to come in and say i've got a value proposition what were those pain points back then a lot of the pain points when it comes to group benefits were really clients not necessarily understanding what they were um what they could access or perhaps even what they should the questions they should be asking I found that there was so many advisors uh, in the group practice that that participated in the benefits uh, sales, but didn't really know the benefits industry. So they were, you know, essentially a a good um, a good shopper for a client to provide, you know, go to market, get a quote, but not really know what the difference is and get something in front of the client and not really add the value of why are you making this purchase? Why is one insurance company better than another? Why is one product better than another? Another, and so we found that there was an opportunity to become more of an edu- educational cons- consultant, sort of educational consultation, rather than simply a salesperson. And and by doing that, we're able to really uh, bring the clients to ask different questions and and try to build their package uh, around what they needed versus just having to have coverage for their employees. So I find that really interesting. I, mean, I find that that's forward thinking. So you transitioned away from management within an insurance company, going into advisor in this entrepreneurial, when, when was that? If you start in the industry 93, when was that, that you transitioned to brokerage? Moved to the insurance company world around 1999 and then started uh, our firm in, I think it was the fall of 2006. Um, really, the idea was, <clears throat> we, we just I just saw that there was so much opportunity from the perspective of, um, at that time, advisors and brokers wanted to exit the business. They were ready to retire, but didn't know what to do with their clients. Um, there were a number of opportunities for me to um, get practices, put them together, build them. So we did a lot of uh, acquisitions. Uh, but then it, it gave us that um, that size and scope where we could then go out and begin to rebuild for these clients what their, their product should be being inventive in in what it was we were putting in front of them as in what type of data would go into a renewal package why would we put that data in there versus what they might have seen before and, and really build a, a story around um, what we could do for them and, and bring advice based on what they needed rather than simply a sales uh, aspect of the insurance world so okay so you did touch on the renewals and the pricing and things like that but but just want to stay with the other point that I, you know, I, I got in the business similar time to you and I found that those, those years in the nineties um, and then even into the early two thousands that we could have a conversation with clients about doing things differently, looking at a needs-based sale, but there was very little that you could then go other than working within a group insurance contract. And I want to get into whether you, what the funding types were, but when you look at the benefit plans, there was some, movement where you could look at different kinds of insurance programs and then you could add some ancillaries like EAP and focus on those. But there wasn't a whole slew of um, alternative options like I would say they are now. So to have been doing needs-based sales back then was pretty forward thinking. So what kinds of things were you doing back then that were differentiating? The biggest um, 
instructional hurdle that I had to educate clients on was the fact that we had a number of insurance carriers, number of companies that could offer the, the, the pack group packages. Back then, it was probably 50 carriers, but let's even say we had the top 20 out there, the top 15. When you looked at them, our, the, the history of our uh, group benefits, you look back 30, 40, 50 years, there's been very little innovation and change up until the last, say, decade. So at that time, we were even if you were comparing insurance company A to insurance company B or C, quite honestly, they basically had the exact same thing. They weren't really offering it any different. So from the client's perspective, trying to educate them to say, it doesn't really matter what color your benefits booklet is, whether it's green or blue or yellow or whatever, you're going to get the same result unless we do something inside of your benefits package. So what is it that you want? What do you need? Where are your costs occurring? Why are your costs changing? And educating them from the perspective of what's the plan design that would make things work, not what carrier are you with? doesn't matter what service station you buy your gas from, you still need the same amount of gas. Well, how do we change the discussion to be what is what is different and unique for you as a client? What do you need? Therefore, how can we rebuild it regardless of the insurance company? And then it led us in further down once we were able to you know, move into things like uh, third-party administration, uh, that kind of thing, where we could really pick and choose and build a platform where we could provide unique value. So at that time, we did have our own in-house billing uh, platform. So we were, be able, uh, were able to sort of pull together a small form of a TPA and we could build you know, a travel program from this company and we could take health and dental from this company and disability from here, and we could build our own package where today it's, it's very commonplace in the, uh, to use a TPA for that. Back when we were building it, we did it all in-house uh, and we were able to be very flexible to show clients the success of, of you know, tearing apart and getting inside uh, their benefits package. So you actually built your own the system. You didn't go buy or rent a system. You built your own system in-house. And Correct. then and getting, well, would you advise people to do the same thing again today? That's an interesting thing. I didn't even think we'd go here today. But would you advise <laughs> advisors to do that again today? With, with technology has kind of gone in the last 10 years. Would you suggest to people it's still, it would be a good idea to build from the from the you know from the ground up inside, or are there systems out there that they could just go rent? There might be a few advisors out there that might choose to build their own billing system and, and create it, and that's you know that might be in their uh, in their sweet spot. But I think there are enough uh, quality TPAs in the market that you can find a partner and and have somebody do that job that uh, they probably quite frankly can do it better than an individual advisor. And that's really what we found is, you know, I found that, that we were really good at, at the educational consultation of what is it that we needed to do for that client? How could we rebuild it? And I didn't want to take the bandwidth the way to, to have to have the billing completed monthly and have to do some claims payment. So we eventually moved out of the TPA market, the billing market and claims market and, and started using other TPAs that are out there just for that purpose. Like let's focus on what we do well and let's give the other features to the other uh, partners that also know what they're doing and they do it well. So we chose to, to move away from that once we were able to begin to partner um, with those that just did a better job than we did. Well, so that's that's really that's a that's a fantastic take, Tom. I mean, so many of us often don't know what our value proposition is, right? So, right. Um, I think if you were to, in that in those terms, be guiding a a new advisor getting into the group market today, 
what would you recommend that they determine or how would they go about determining what their value proposition is? What is their value proposition? What is the the value proposition today of, of a general advisor who's not a TPA, et cetera? You've just asked probably the most important question, I believe, that that is out there. Um, the biggest challenge for advisors, in my opinion, is differentiation. There are there are so many people that are licensed to do what we do. And when we're in front of a client, you know that other people are tr- trying to be in front of that same client and, and trying to, what is your differentiation? And for the most part, people start out with, oh, I'm you know a really good uh, client service person. Well, if you're not good at it, you probably shouldn't be in that, in that door anyway. So I think that's sort of a, a, a table stakes ante. Um, next is we have three, four, five advisors that kind of are, basically doing the same thing. And now they're going to go to a client, take their benefits and go to an insurance company and try to get a quote for them or maybe two or three quotes. Well, again, as we said earlier, the insurance companies basically do the same thing, offer the same products. So we have multiple people going to multiple resources, ultimately bringing back the exact same thing to a client. We've achieved no version of differentiation. We look the same, uh, we talk the same, we use the same concepts. So to me, that's the biggest question to ask yourself is what is it that I can bring that's unique and different? It could be a number of things. It could be, you know, I do look at the data and and when I talk to renewals, I'm I'm definitely into the data side of things to tear it apart to say, what is it that we can do better from a plan design perspective? Um, Because the problem is your plan design. The problem isn't the insurance company. The problem isn't your employees. The problem is your plan design. So, I'm a data guy. That would, that's where I found some of my value add is, is, is being that educational person. The next person might be a problem solver where they can make the employee's claims issues go away because maybe their carrier doesn't do a very good job of that. So maybe they're more of a service-ended person. Somebody else might be um, maybe have a unique uh, product that they've accessed through a distributor that you know not many people know about yet. So their value add might be sourcing out new and unique ways of, you know, doing claims. Think back when when the um, pharmacy benefit manager uh, information was sort of first new and innovative and different. Maybe somebody has access to that type of thing. So the, the biggest thing is finding out what is it that, that you enjoy doing? What's your differentiator and value add? And build something that makes you look different and perform different to that client. So it doesn't matter if I go to... Uh, carrier A, B, or C, when I bring that back, I'm going to look and have a different form of offering than the next three people that sit down and make you an offer as a client. So I'm really trying to build off my strengths of of what it is that I think I can bring to you um, that's different than others. So it's it's not an easy question to answer, but it is probably the key one of being successful in the group benefit industry is why, why me versus the next person? Perfect. So now if we project forward from the issues that you faced when you were starting up with your firm and the things that you were solving, and as you said, we've had this tremendous leap forward with technology and probably with solutions that are available, disruptors and others, is there space to define a completely different value proposition as an advisor today? Because we and and to be able to solve problems that we couldn't, could you identify any? How do you feel about how different the market is today, ten years later, in terms of availability of solutions versus what it was ten years ago? 
Yeah, it's a totally different market today because you've got so many avenues that weren't necessarily there um, 15, 20 years ago. So, for example, um, virtual sales. I mean, we've just all been through working at home for the last two and a half, three years. So, I mean, we know that that occurs. So, we've just hyper uh, extended the virtual sales capability. That's different than what it was where you were a face-to-face person all the time in every meeting and it was trust first, sales second. Well, now we've got this virtual world where trust is built through technology. Uh, We've also got telephone sales where people are making sales over the phone and never necessarily meeting the client. So there are lots of ways clients can make a purchase. Um, And it's, again, it goes back to feeling, finding out what's comfortable for you as an advisor and what fits for your world. There may be uh, really technologically savvy advisors out there that have um, a great online presence and and never have to meet clients, but do do their sales in a whole different way. That's great. If that works for you, wonderful. Um, But there may be other people that that really still um, need to have that. uh, face-to-face type conversation with clients to really demonstrate their their need, their function, their education to them. But there's no question the the industry has changed from the availability of product, um, how you access it, the volume of, of accessibility, meaning the number of providers of different items, especially products. For example, like you said, maybe it's a, a travel product or an AD&D product or a wellness product. And I mean the wellness industry alone, there's so many providers out there. So really picking and choosing and partnering with those that can that you can build a package for that client. Just there, there's so much out there. You have to be um, very aware of all the features that are available to to build your package for that client. I've always felt like when I first started in the industry, it was very difficult. And you kind of alluded to it, but to kind of maybe put some definition from my perspective around that, this idea that there was no needs-based selling. It was a product-based sale 25 years ago, 20 years ago, because whatever you did, you you got the data in order to go get quotes to fulfill the specification. And it was didn't matter if you, although there is some really, I mean, it would be like everyone's vanilla. All the insurance companies are selling vanilla. Same might have some chocolate sprinkles and others might have strawberry syrup because, you know, Manulife might have the Vitality program or it might be, you know, on a, uh, RBC with a, a mental health solution related to disability or little slight differences, but generally very much the same underlying structure. And it's still true today, but we've got all these other um, availabilities today. So back then, it really wasn't a needs-based sale. There might have been needs around costing and what you're trying to achieve in that area, very limited. But it seems to, to me today that it's, it's very much a needs-based sale. You can assess a client from their cultural objectives, what are you trying to kind of culture you're trying to establish and what how diverse is your workforce? How many different kinds of needs are you trying to satisfy? So if you were, first of all, I guess I'd I stress test that you agree with the the idea that it's a much more complex needs-based sale today than it was 10 years ago. And then if that's the case, um is it really reasonable for a generalist advisor to do group benefits where they're not, are they, it's kind of a controversial question. Have we moved to a point where an advisor just going out and selling a group insurance contract, you know, meeting one insurer, making friends with one rep, and therefore selling that one group insurance contract, that they truly are serving the interests of the client? Or are they better off to either learn the business, 
be able to do a more comprehensive consult and sale or better partner with someone who can? I mean, how does that work today? The the advisor, the generalist that has the one group and they, they don't know how to market, so they just went to a carrier, they got a product and put it in place. To be honest, the carriers we have today are, are all generally pretty good. There's not too many out there that you know are, are true failures at what they do. They actually do a pretty good job. So uh, again, something in this market is better than nothing. So it, it, having that in front of a client, I would trust most of the products that our carriers have today, which means the client's probably in fine a fine position. Could we improve it? Absolutely. And that's where you're going is we can we can be a generalist and, and make a sale um, sort of unwittingly put a product in front of a client and, and it would be fine. But to do a, 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 the best job you can for the client, that's where learning the business, learning the detail or partnering with somebody who is um, does have that knowledge and does have that detail would be able to put the client in a better position. So something's better than nothing. Uh, but I think that, that doing it, again, if it's going to be your specialty, I would think that focusing a bit, becoming much more aware much more educated and doing a better job for your client to me is the way to go. That's the way we build our practice. I mean, that was our choice. Um, we, we, I decided that we were going to be, you know, not in the group retirement service market, not in the investment market. We divested of that. We weren't going to be in the billing and claims payment TPA market. We, we got out of that. We simply focused on what we could do for the client in, in the way that we thought was better than what others were doing. I say better, meaning better results. Um, <clears throat> Going back to your point, you know, 20 years ago, when you, there were very few that were, you know, true specialists in the group market, like truly a handful um, outside of some of the consulting firms. And so back in that day, you'd take the data and you go to an insurance company and you've heard the term a million times, sharpen your pencil. And they would compete and they would knock off X percent and they'd come back out and you go to their client and say, hey, look what we did. And the client was happy they got a lower price and off you went. Well, today, that's just not the case. Carriers will look, the, the underwriters in each company do a pretty good job. So you take one case to another underwriter and say, I'd like a better price. Well, it's not just a price conversation. It's now what's the what's the plan design? What are the claims? And what does that mean? And our, most carriers are at least being aware of the, the um, problem of taking on an underpriced program. So they're really not just doing an undercut anymore, where 20 years ago, they used to, you know, use cutthroat. Uh, underwriting to try to get every case they could. Today, it's not the case. It's improved um, in that way as well. We have more product to put in front of clients, more technology, more information, but the carriers do a better job as well of pricing it based on the need. So that's where we go back to the plan design. Um, what is it that you're paying for? Where are your claims coming from? Your claims are your next year's premium and the underwriters now, I believe, do a pretty good job of pricing that out. It's our role as the as the advisor to dig in and ask the question, therefore answer the question about where are you spending your money and, and is it working correctly? We can't just beg for rate anymore. We have to do some work and make sure that we're actually um, making the claims uh, cost sustainable. What do you think about the future of, of the one-size-fits-all traditional defined benefit plan as opposed to perhaps HSAs for transactional spend and or flexible spending accounts with wellness accounts added, or, or flex benefits, even down to small employers. I mean, Equitable Life now has their MyFlex program right down to three people. What do you see there? The option 
<clears throat> the option for um, selecting coverage for a group is is important. That's obviously, I say obviously, in my opinion, it's the way to go. <clears throat> Whether that's flex or a combination of an insured benefit and HSA, the whole concept of um, one flat defined benefit program for everybody is probably going to fade away, but there's still going to be needs that need to be heard and there are needs that should be budgeted for. And that's really where you're, where you're leading to is, are we using a spending account or using a flex program where I can, can pick what my budget items might be knowing that there's a base of insured um, need there. <clears throat> insured need would be your life insurance, your disability coverages, that kind of thing. But your, <clears throat> um, you know, physio, chiro, massage, your basic dental, uh, all of those can be budgeted. So I, I think that we're going to get to a spot where we have um, the ability to select those budget items and fund them in a different way and then keep the basic insurance for those insured needs. I think it's <clears throat> just going to get, um, sorry, I'll step back. The idea of moving to a flex plan for small up to down to three lives, that kind of thing. We're now getting into the pricing and the, uh, the actuarial piece of it where, you know, anything less than, you know, say 50 lives, there's no actuarial science to it anymore. At some point it has to be pooled. If they're, if an insurance company is doing a flex plan for a small group, they've essentially just taken on the pooling effect themselves in the back and they're going to take care of it. So we're the idea for a client's flexibility. It's great. But if you and I are talking now about the big picture of what's the benefit world look like, we're now referring back and we're probably talking more about actuarial funding than we are about benefit offerings. <laughs> no, fair enough. I mean, it, it, fair comment. It, it, ultimately, you're going to have a mechanism of pricing it. But it's this it's this advent again, we talk about disruptors. So I think equitable life leverage technology, when they redid their systems, I don't know, probably even 20, 30 years ago, and I'm not sure exactly when, I mean, I think I was with them back in the mid '90s when they started to put new, you know, kind of get rid of the mainframes and going to server-based systems and things. And they, you know, I think they leveraged off that technology to be able to build an admin system that was prohibit- prohibitively expensive for small employers previously in terms of getting into a flex admin platform. And they built one which they just put. They call it flex in a box. So here's the advent of technology that's enabled a flex benefit plan right down to three lives. But to your point, now from an underwriting perspective, mm-hmm. the only way to do that to avoid the anti-selective side of it is to pool it, right? And they do that. So technology. Then there's the HSA side, which we've got disruptors like my HSA and others that are that are really you know d- driving that that business in a really interesting way. It's curious. So with all of this complexity, you know, it's no longer just the vanilla sale. It really can be so much more diverse. Maybe not even ice cream anymore. Maybe it's something different even in terms of the plan. And it's not just the insured elements. It's the ancillaries that you were mentioning as well. We've got EAP, telemedicine. We've got uh, health incentive programs like Vitality at Manulife or the Change for Life program at Greenshield and other things like this. Understanding the relative merits of these things and how they apply is really important. So have we got to the point where the group benefits consult, the group benefits sale requires an expertise beyond the licensing of a life insurance advisor? And should we start looking towards the Quebec model where advisors who want to sell group insurance either have to be licensed for group or partner with someone who is licensed for group? Yeah, I think we reached that point, you know, a number of years ago. And it, it, um, 
from a licensing perspective, we obviously, the industry hasn't gone there yet, but there's no question. You just listen to what you've uh, rattled off in terms of options and needs and, and carriers and, and that kind of thing. And it's, it's very, I think it would be very difficult to be a generalist and, and try to, to do anything other than an adequate job based on what you just said. I mean, we need to have the, the group benefit specialist that knows all of those uh, pieces that you you um, put out there and know how to pick and choose and build a platform for that client. Many of those things may not be appropriate for a specific client, but there may be a ton of them that would be important for another client. We have to have the ability, the knowledge, the understanding to know where to go, know how to place them, know how to bring them together, and know how to put them in a cohesive um, platform in front of a client so they can use them effectively for their staff. I mean, ultimately, we go back. Employers are trying to do this to keep their staff healthy and, and give them a, a um, financially efficient way of protecting themselves and their families. So I just think the, the specialist, um, the, the licensed person that has the ability to do this is going to be uh, probably going to come out on top more often than not when competing for future business. Awesome. I'm going to change gears. I'm going to change direction a little bit. Come back to your practice. Sure. So you built a practice up, a sizable, we were talking about it earlier this afternoon, a sizable block and you had 12 employees. In building that practice, what would you say were the most difficult aspects of business building that you confronted? Keeping, <clears throat> keeping momentum in the same direction was a challenge. And, and when I say momentum, sometimes you get uh, ideas and get pulled off in a different direction. And so whether you were a sales-focused organization or a service-focused organization, for example, is one thing that could derail you. For, in group, obviously, we are essentially selling every year. The renewal is a new, a new sale. We have to re-engage that client. <clears throat> but we also have to attract new clients. So if a renewal becomes a service offering and and claims questions and, and that kind of thing are a service offering, does that derail your ability to go get new clients, as in new sales, purchase of, of book, uh, that kind of thing? And that's a struggle as you grow. We elected to do it where we wanted to put people in front of people. So we probably had more staff and uh, and were in front of the clients more often than others were. We thought that was important, but it does then lead you to what are we? Are we a sales organization or a service organization? And that was probably the biggest challenge once we got to a specific size. Prior to that, it was it was great to be out there and just you know working with clients, getting new opportunities, and building that book. As we moved on, it, it became more of a challenge to make sure that we were being efficient and streamlined in front of people and still providing the value we wanted, not defaulting back to um, what many others were doing, which was just sort of expecting the client would renew, send things in the mail, send things by email, and maybe not perform the same um, detail of duty that we, that we did. So keeping one single focus was probably the biggest challenge over the years. And then um, you, you spoke about people. So you were putting people in front of people. So was your office, was your team mostly kind of client support consult skill set? Or did you also have back office um, analysts and 
procedural people as well. What was the, what was the balance between those two? Yeah, and that's that did fluctuate as we as we moved through. We had uh, had a, a period of time where we actually had uh, an in-house actuary that did a lot of that analysis for us, and then our service team and our sales team could take that out. Uh, we went through a period of time with uh, with using the skills of our consultants as sort of the main um, analytical driver of those renewals and of the pricing of things and using the service team as sort of their backup support. So it, it did fluctuate depending on the actual talents of the group we had in place. Um, but what we found is that uh, you re- once we got to a, the size where we needed to really put uh, strong support for that book of business. We, we kind of moved it to say, we need service to take care of our clients and we need to um, get our salespeople out hunting and let them go do what they do better uh, and, and not tag them with service related items. So we really, you know, picked those salespeople, got them out in the street and then built a service team behind them to do the, the analytics, to do the client service and the renewals. And and people not, not saying that's right uh, for sure. That, that's the model we ended up with. But certainly right. there are lots of different models out there. Again, dependent upon how much payroll you wanted to have, how many people you wanted, and how much you wanted to rely on the insurance companies and or TPAs for some of the service. There, there's nothing wrong with relying more heavily on the insurance company and maybe not having as much payroll. And that that's that's a model as well. That just wasn't the model we had at the time. Well, I mean, I'm just pushing at you on, on that. Do you not think that there's a relative value in actually owning some of that service that service experience rather than offloading that to the insurer? Is, is, is there actually an imperative to have someone that represents the advisor client um, in terms of the service support as opposed to just offloading to the insurer? Yeah, and that's that's why we did it. We thought it was important to have the uh, we wanted to own that relationship and bring in tools where appropriate. We didn't want to um, leave it to a one eight hundred number service kind of item. So we did uh, we did run the payroll in our uh, our world a little higher to try to make sure we had people to answer questions. I believe it was the right thing for us to do, um, and I, I think it um, it allowed us to hear. The problems, needs, and frustrations of the client therefore respond to them. And if we um, allowed the, the client service to be done externally uh, by the carrier or something like that, we wouldn't know what all the everyday problems, needs, and frustrations were. Therefore, we couldn't respond. So we felt it important to do that. And I think it put us in a, a more capable position to be there uh, when needed or in advance when you maybe heard there was grumblings and you could go and do something about it. Let me ask you a controversial question in terms of insurance company service and support. I mean, there are, there's definitely differentiation. Some carriers have got, you know, maybe focus on service in a different way. And there's different cultures certainly around that. But is there an incentive for insurance companies to service claims, questions, and others in a certain way where having a, a third party intervene on certain kinds of questions can produce a more uh, balanced response from the insurer. It, you know, and with that, it's, so where you might get a response from an insurer, which is really a bookish response, and then that's the end of it. And the client kind of goes, well, couldn't there be another way to do this? Whereas if you had 
if they brought it to an advisor, to an advisor support team, where there's this more holistic view of what's available in the industry, and that support person could then take up the, you know, take up the charge for the for the claimant or for the the plan member, speaking to the insurer with a more holistic view of what's available and what could be done. Do you not actually get potentially better results for the customer that way as well? I do believe you do. Um, the insurance company will give you the answer. They'll answer the question or make the claim happen or what have you. But if if you're to involve the advisor, you might actually find the underlying, uh, you might find an underlying issue. There's nothing to do with that claims question. It's just the, the opening uh, of the conversation. I mean, you think of things like, I remember there was a time where there was a, a client issue with a CPAP machine. And, and so we got the claim answered, but that opened a whole new door to go back to the uh, employer and have a conversation around what does your plan design look like? Are you aware that you just paid for a $2,000 CPAP machine? By the way, you also paid for one six months ago. Your claims experience just took a nosedive. Are you aware that that's going to occur? What should we do about it? So that's the kind of thing that it can lead to is not the fact that the claim was taken care of is, is fine. But it opened a bigger conversation to, again, going back to plan design. What is it that we're doing? So it could be a number of things that maybe are less costly, but you know, maybe it's a, just a, a process flow of how claims work. Maybe that allows us to go back and at the next employee meeting, do a re-education on how does coordination of benefits work or how does the, you know, that kind of thing. So it's not so much the fact that the question was answered or wasn't answered. It's why was the question asked in the first place and what can we do about that? That's the important thing for me. So in order to provide that, what would you say was, if there are different parts of the business, there's the sales consultative people, there's the service people, et cetera. What kinds of skill sets are you looking for when you're hiring people? What are the primary, what are the most important features of the various types of employees or people, team members that we need running insurance agencies? I think the most important thing, again, let's, let's, the skill has to be there, the training, that kind of thing, your base level of knowledge. <clears throat> but what will differentiate your um, firm from others is going to be the ability to think. And that's going to be problem solve, challenge, create different ideas. The, the, I, I don't believe in the word no. It's just not yet or we haven't yet got there. So what is it that we can do to better enhance the the client experience. Um, as So hopefully our people are thinking forward to answer the, the next question of, okay, here's what occurred. We're going to help solve that. What can we do next? Here's what I heard from one client. How can I use um, what I learned to help the next three clients? It's the ability to think, problem solve maybe isn't the right word, but it's, it's um, thinking a bigger scope than a single pointed response. What does that response uh, what's the outcome of that response, not the response itself? The response is important, but what's the outcome of that? What's the ripple effect of that? And what does it do in terms of your knowledge for the clients and or the next step with this current client? So I think, again, going back, it's just finding people that can um, can think around a problem and think through it to assist that client. And communication. Communication yeah, skills. Sure. Communication key. is true. Absolutely. Right. Approach, attitude. So. If we were to think about what you were just most recently doing with a voluntary benefits platform, um, how important do you think that kind of a program is today? In other words, that level of individualization. So it's not just what the employer provides, 
as a, in terms of, let's say we're going flex benefits and this whole one size fits all no longer is the, the, the right solution. We've got to find some mechanism of allowing people to use, utilize the employer budget, employer spend in a way that's meaningful on a personalized level through an HESA or through a flex benefits plan, whatever it might be. But this other aspect of the employer providing um, opportunities for individuals to acquire things on their own, from their own budget, on some kind of preferred terms, et cetera. How important is that as part of the landscape of benefit plans as we move forward? I think it's very important. I think it's going to be, um, uh, it will be your attraction and retention tool. Uh, people, again, uh, pointing back to the last three years, they've seen how business can change and be different. So employees are asking different questions today. What is your work from home policy? What is your flex program uh, for work environment? But there, it, it is also, I'm different than you. What do I need to spend my money on to keep my family healthy and happy and, and at work? So the ability to offer that will become a bigger conversation in the HR office, for sure. No question in my mind. But what it also does to me, going back to the style of business we talked about, it brings that advisor full circle that you cannot have these more complex, these more choice related um, uh, funding potential option related features without good, solid advice. You can't do an online purchase or an over the phone purchase of a program that does not have the education, the backup uh, of that advisor. So because they're going to become more and more prevalent, that brings um, much more opportunity for us as advisors to get back in and do a great job of building the right product, educating the people to use it right. I just think it provides great opportunity for us. And because and because the work, workforce is so much more diverse now, being able to provide this kind of mechanism that allows for individualization really meets people where they're at. And, and, and the demand is there. The workforce is definitely changing radically, radically. It's work. Absolutely. And, work and you're helping that. You're helping that HR office do a better job for their staff by doing it because you do, you know, you do have those uh, employees that are working in the same organization, but they are 180 degrees different in terms of their wants, needs, and, and requirements. So if we're able to get in there, do a good job and assist them in building it, but also help helping educate and promoting it, we then assist them in better recruitment and retention. And that, that makes us more valuable. When did you sell, when did you sell your practice? What year? Uh, it was uh, 2019 was when we uh, did the equity transaction. So in your experience in the in the actual application business right up to there, although, I mean, in your pre, in your most recent gig, you were also doing, and you were, you were at, you were, I mean, you were talking to clients. Have you seen a, any different, any ch- not, notable change, at least something that you could point to and say it's different there? Um, in terms of, say, companies that are founded and built on or managed by people that are millennial and post-millennials as opposed to those of us who are older, pre-millennial, is there a remarkable difference in the way that they view their work and how they and, and are they actually asking for benefits in a different way to the way the older community are, have been? 
They, they are. And again, I think it's, there's a number of pressures that have led to that. You mentioned one, it's the younger generation that are now being the business leaders. They do think differently and, and that's great. Um, they do bring more of that flexible uh, idea to the, to the workplace. We've just, as we mentioned earlier, we've gone through the whole work from home uh, uh, situation. And so we're now into that uh, mode of questioning from employees now that are they're frankly demanding more flexibility. Um, it, it's only going to become more important for employers of any age to be able to accommodate flexibility. And, and we as the uh, benefits uh, world are going to have to also accommodate that. And that's going to be in plan design. It's going to be in funding arrangement. It's going to be in you know select um, personal selected product rather than group selected product. We're, we're going to have to be able to be there um, to, to fulfill the needs of the, the current and future workforce. So let's talk about distribution models. So you know, back in the day when it was the career agency system, so advisors worked for a given insurance company, they sold that insurance company's group product. It was a much simpler sale back then, as we had spoken about. I mean, back in the day, I think when I got into the business, it was early 90s in British Columbia, the extended health rates was something like $5 per single, $10 to $12 per family. Because there was, there was virtually nothing beyond what the public spend was that the employee, employee was having to pay for out of pocket. And the utility of paramedical practitioners was very limited. But that's grown. People are using massage therapy, physiotherapy, et cetera, in ways in, in an increasing uh, scale. And drugs, the cost of drugs have, have exploded. So things have changed radically. So back then, simple sale, advisor working for Manulife, working for whatever the career shop was back in Confed, Malico, you know, all of the different companies that they were with and spoke to the group rep, put something in place. It was a commodity, it was a commodity sale and, and off you went, product sale, off you went. Then you had the advent of TPAs and brokerage. TPAs were smaller, but that became a thing. And TPA became a, 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 a vogue. And more recently, you've had this kind of advent of Group MGA, which I also think is something that's could be different to could be different depending on which MGA you're talking to as to what the percentage of Group MGA is. Unlike individual insurance in MGA, where it's pretty similar as to what it is, there's a standard, there's a similar deliverable. Group MGAs are quite varied in what they <laughs> offer. But but if you were to look at the TPA before we go to the MGA. Has it, is the TPA today at risk of two things? One, becoming um, threatened by the barrier of entry to becoming a TPA is much lower because technology today can be programmed so cheaply, uh, relatively speaking, yep. so that others who are inventive could come up with a, a faster, better, smarter, nicer widget than you've already built your legacy system. Is that a threat to them? And the other thing is a TPA generally have the threat that they're going to ultimately just become a consolidator and also become just another carrier. In other words, they do all the administration for a single program that they run. They might have various underwriters behind it carrying the risk, but they're in other words, they're not serving the brokerage market. They're not actually supporting the client with a brokerage solution. They become a single solution. So the two challenges are technology as a barrier to entry and are they at risk there? And are they at risk of becoming single product, you know, purveyors? To answer your second question first, absolutely. Um, my my one of my pet peeves when speaking to clients when they said, "Oh yeah, we already work with the TPA, or our broker has us in a good situation with the TPA." 
with that TPA, if they have had, maybe they have multiple products. So health's with one company, LTDs with one, another one. And, you know, you, you built maybe four or five companies underneath it, but if they've never changed and it's been six, seven years of the same companies, you've become a single source provider. So you might have multiple labels, but you are just a single source provider. So you're the advantage of being a, uh, an administrator with functional capabilities is gone because you've just proven yourself to be a single source provider. So to me, I wanted to work with work in an environment where we could be flexible so we could be creative and build that for that customer. So we needed partners. And, and I still believe today there's a need to work with partners that have a flexible uh, capability of move. So if there's, if there's something that's not working, whether it's a product, your LTD product, or maybe it's the pricing of that LTD product or the pool is bad, if you can bring in another one and replace it without interrupting the rest of it, that's the way to do it. When, I, when I'm playing golf and I'm having a problem I uh, can't putt very well. I don't want to throw my entire golf bag away just so I can replace my putter. So that's the the idea of a TPA is having that uh, flexibility to really work with the the providers that will build the right package for you or allow you the ability to build build the package. Um, th- that uh, yeah, your point is is valid. A TPA can become segment. So before we provider. go to the other one, before we go to the other one, because I, I really I, I appreciate which is because we are in our what we're doing, we're totally committed to the notion of brokerage as a value proposition, and we we speci- speci- we specially or specifically avoid becoming a TPA. The there's this incentive, there's this. Um, I don't know what the right word is. There's this urge every now and again to move towards TPA, but then you start to realize that as soon as you start running that system, you've got to try and run that as efficiently as possible and start to stream it down, you know, streamline it down. You end up having one pool or one thing and you're delivering one, one product. But the notion of being able to consult and now match, as you said much earlier in this conversation, assess needs, understand needs, and then look at it and go, what are the differentiators between this carrier and that carrier? What piece can we add for this piece? It's a, that's that is essential to the and that that is a value proposition that that needs to be considered and I think supported as we move forward. Right? I mean, it's a specific yeah, business absolutely. case. Yeah. So going back to the TPA on the threat from other t- from technology as a as a as a, an, a barrier to entry and the, the, it's coming down as a barrier to entry. Is that a threat? Yeah. There's no. There's no question that there's a greater ability to use technology to to create options for folks. No question. I don't think it's a big uh, threat to that TPA market. Um, in the, in that you still need those uh, underwriters to price the product, hold the product, uh, take the risk of it. And, and I don't know if you know any any smaller startup, uh, even if they use the technology properly and build a great widget they still have to have the backing of those ultimate insurers and then support of them to create that. So I don't, I don't know if there's a real threat there. I think that would be a niche opportunity for someone to build and and take on, but I don't think it's going to become a broad threat to the administrator market. Um, But that doesn't mean it couldn't be a, a unique entry for a firm to do that and have as their value proposition. So stepping away from, um, stepping away from, the underlying product, which is the financial insur- the insurance and the funding, the payments and protection aspect of what insurance companies do, and going to user experience. Have have the insurers advanced to a point in terms of user experience where TPAs 
cannot compete. The online experience of enrolling, checking your claims, all of those things, or has that become as well commoditized and is it pretty much a level playing field now as well? No, we've, we've seen TPAs that have done a very good job of that, uh, that holistic user experience where it doesn't look and feel like you're clunking between carriers with a front-facing bill. Um, there, I think the market has done a very good job of, of creating that. I don't think every TPA has done it um, to the degree of seamless, but there's no question there are, there are TPA candidates that are, are equal to the, the carriers in their, uh, as you said, enrollment, um, set up, that kind of thing, functionality, uh, and even claims using the, the online claims um, uh, adjudication, that kind of thing. I think some TPAs have done a good job of it. There's still a few hangers uh, hangers on that uh, haven't maybe yet invested the money they require. But for the, I think for the most part, your top end TPAs are, are going to be uh, at par with the insurance company um, uh, enrollment experience. So they actually, well, there's the claims experience as well, et cetera. But so there is, those things are still, there's, to just get into the TPA market is not a simple thing. A person's got to understand the whole experience and how to build to that whole experience and then have the underwriters, as you said, to support and build the business. I just wondered to myself whether we've arrived with TPA at a point where there's the incremental value that one, one that a startup might have over a legacy TPA system today is so marginal that I'm not sure there's a, you know, is there, is there still an, a kind of a blue ocean opportunity with, with um with it building a tpa system but let's go back to the insurers then are insurers competing today too much on their user experience and on the ancillary stuff and not focusing enough on the insurance side of and the payments and protection side of what they that's really what they're meant to be doing have they have they lost the focus on that and started to you know try to compete more on places that aren't that shouldn't be their core competency core delivery yeah i think your your point is valid in that insurance companies the basis of what they do is collect payment provide coverage and make um, uh, claims uh, pay claims appropriately to fulfill the need the the idea of the the user experience kind of thing being their forefront, I, I think probably is secondary to their basic need of uh, putting coverage in place and, and paying claims well, efficiently, and, and um, you know, to the contract as opposed to frivolously. I, I, I can't answer whether they've spent too much time on the front end, but it, it, having a balance of making sure you're not losing sight of what you're in business for, and that's to make sure you're protecting the people paying the premium, I think is ultimately most important. Um, but uh, they, there, there has to be user experience somewhere along the way. I don't know. I don't know to what degree um, it should be an insurance company versus, you know, whether it is the TPA or whether it is the employer. I, I don't know where that where that lands, but they uh, they certainly are focusing on it. Uh, the user experience is important. I mean, it's it's customer service. It's all of those things make it. You know, the whole argument about. Um, I think you'd said it earlier, but it's better to have something than to have nothing. So, you know, there's that piece. And to make sure that the user experience is such that people will engage more, there's there's, there's actual real value to that. It's not just the fluffy stuff. It's not just that, oh, it's so cool when I do it. It's actually meaningful because it makes it more user-friendly for people, encourage user utilization, et cetera. It's, it's a good thing. But, but beyond that, 
is what about the insurance? I mean, for me, the frustration is disability insurance. We now have, I don't know what percent, I would love, you know, I probably should have done this before we actually got the call. But like, what's the percentage of the workforce today that is over age 65 compared to what it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago? Number one. Number two, the radical need for a catastrophic drug program beyond our typical experience rated kept by stop loss insurance, which is an old school product. Why are we not innovating? Insurance, the last insurance product that I'm aware of that was innovated in Canada was critical illness insurance. And it wasn't even innovated here. It wasn't developed yet. It was, a, it was cloned from other countries, so it was built elsewhere. Um, but we've got unique situations in the Canadian context. Um, the one of work working beyond 65 is not unique to us, but it probably is more prevalent in the um in in the developed world. So it's a it, it's 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 something we have to deal with. Um and if disability insurance ends at 65, well, what happens to a person that's working till they're 70, 75, 80? My grandfather worked, I think, until he's not into his 90s. So, you know, there's that. There's and then on the insurance, on, on the drug side, why aren't we getting more innovation there? Is there an obligation? Yeah, the, the drug side is unique um, in that we obviously have provincial uh, guidelines and rules that are different. There's, as in coverages from the provinces that are given out. Um, but for sure, the, the cost component of it, the innovation, um, as you talked about, hasn't been there in the insured products outside of CI and maybe some technology. But I think, I think the insurance companies are maybe um, perhaps not as motivated to reduce the cost of claims because ultimately they have the premium charge for that, and that's what they're in business to do. They make their profits from it. So to 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 be very innovative in reducing claims costs probably isn't in their financial best interest, but for sure in their moral best interest. And I think that's really where we wanted to, to focus or what I've tried to do with the partners we've picked over time is how do we how do we attack the underlying cost of the claims? I don't we're all gonna everybody's gonna get sick at some point. That's fine. What can we do to reduce the duration of that claim or the cost uh, of the um inputs of that claim. So drugs being one, how can we reduce the cost of the medication? So maybe it's the generic version, maybe it's an alternative. <clears throat> um, maybe it's use of, of government programs, but how can we ultimately reduce the cost of the claim? And then if there is a disability, how do we ensure that that disability or inability to work doesn't go on for three weeks? Maybe it only takes 11 days. So those are the things where I think there can be much more innovation is, is being proactive to um, think of case management of a short-term claim. We always case manage LTD claims, but no one ever case manages a, an STD claim. How do we actually get in there to case manage that claim and reduce the duration of it and then attack the cost of the, of the actual claim itself? Those are the ways I think that the insurance companies can do a better job of um, you know, fulfilling the, the obligation to the customer. So let's go to the MGAs. This, you know, there's this role, there's this um up and coming segment. I don't want to say it's up and coming because there are some group MGAs that have been around now for you know a couple of decades, I would think maybe a little bit longer than that, even, but it still feels like it's an it's a component of the distribution chain 
that is learning itself. It's figuring itself out. The insurance companies are figuring out how to work with group MGAs. The industry is figuring out how to work with it. Advisors are starting to look and say, well, what is the value proposition of working with an MGA as opposed to paying personally? What do you see as the role of the MGA? How do you see the the, the world of the group MGA unfolding as we move forward? You know, I, I speak from a little bit of experience. We did uh, we did dabble in the group MGA model ourselves, and we did have advisors that worked through it, where we tried to partner with them to to again ultimately uh, allow them to be more successful. But I, I think what we learned and what I've been able to observe in other MGAs is the group model so different as you alluded to? It's not as sophisticated as the individual MGA model. So the insurance companies don't have the same level of you know override compensation and that kind of stuff. So a group MGA really has to take the current uh, compensation and, and, and split it with those advisors for the most part. And, and the challenge there is advisors have to buy into the, the value they're receiving from that group MGA. So where it ends up typically is I've seen it, it's those newer advisors or newer to group advisors that don't yet have the depth of knowledge to compete or to have the same level of um, educational value add as others. Um, and it's those, uh, additionally, it's those that just, they want to be uh, specialists in another field, but they don't want somebody else talking to their client. So they're, you know, the ability um, to, to, to share that uh, client with a trusted uh, group such as your, your group MGA, and and so we're not necessarily attracting as a group MGA every advisor. We're attracting those that probably are not specialists in group, um, either because they don't want to. They're specializing somewhere else. They don't yet have the knowledge, or they don't want to invest in their own infrastructure and HR payroll to create their own model. So I think the the group MGA today is a good facilitator for those. Uh, for those three segments of of advisor, and so as the and, and I mean underlying that is you touch on a, th- a couple of things is that infrastructure cost thing keeping it down and remaining lean or um, um, not wanting to specialize it's the specialization piece as well getting access to it which is which is bodes well I guess for it and who should pay the freight you know there, there's some models that say the insurance company should pay for the MGA and that's where the comp should come from and others that say no the advisor should pay for that. What's your thought on that? Yeah, I, I think I think there is a an ability, or there should be an ability to have a, a compensation model that is built with some override, more leaning toward the individual model. Meaning, if the group MGA is able to, uh, you know, combine and bring volume uh, to the insurance companies, there should be some benefit for that volume. Um, that being said, uh, I think there's some ability for the uh, um, advisor in the MGA to share some compensation because you are providing value that the advisor said, hey, I, I don't want to play in that world. Either I can't or I don't want to. So educate me. Um, and during that time of education, there will be some cost to me to get that education from my group MGA. And at that time, I'll either choose to to leave and do my group independently and take 100% comp or I find it's a great value and we'll continue on. So I think it's there is some super valid um, reason for the for the advisor to share with the group MGA just because they are outsourcing some of their either because they have to or because they choose to some of their service model education model um, or admin service model. I would have to do the work myself 
I want to send a group out. First, I've got to find out. And it could be as ben- the, the, as basic information going, which insurance company is playing this market? Who are people I need to speak to at those insurance companies to get quotes? What information are they going to need to get the quotes? So just running the quotes for them and proposals for them is something they're going to need to spend time doing themselves. So if you're off board, if you're offloading that on someone else, well, there's a there's a cost for that. And hopefully the shared the shared value model of working together uh, pr- produces a better result for you than you paying for yourself. And then there's all the education, the other softer um, uh, value props that come from it as well. So that's great. So let me ask you this. Um, moving off, going back to your to your business and maybe you know, bring it around to this, you had mentioned that you sold your business um, through an equity sale. So I'm a, uh, oh, I'm, you know, I'm not a merchant acquisitions guy, but I mean, I'm opposing, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming yeah, an equity sale as opposed to an asset sale. And so if that's the case, um, why an equity sale as? Is there merit to someone who's looking to sell, build a business, and then sell it as in being able to um, conduct an equity sale as opposed to an asset sale? Is there value difference? Why one versus the other? The, the motivation for um, the form of transaction that we undertook was, in my mind, there's two ways of doing it. You could sell your book of business. There's uh, everybody knows in the last number of years there's been a great deal of acquisition activity going on, and so there's lots of opportunity. But there's two ways of doing it: you sell your asset, um, or you sell your business entity and allow it to continue to run. My fear was, and and my expectation was, if someone bought the asset, the client business, that they would quite literally have no need for a staff. They'd absorb the clients, fire the staff, and off they go. And, and my goal was to achieve an ability to exit the business without um, hurting our employees. So by us doing a transaction where the we sold the equity, therefore the business kept in place, 100% of the staff kept their jobs, nobody lost any income, and we moved on through. So my, my biggest um, uh, item in picking who our partners would be was going to be what was going to happen to our staff and what was going to happen to the entity. I didn't want somebody to buy the book and fire the staff. Uh, we really wanted the, those jobs to continue. Did you have to pay a price for that? Was the valuation different because of that? No, actually, I, the valuation was very comparable in terms of uh, what we would get if we were just to have the book of business uh, operating. We were able to find, uh, again, a partner that saw value in the entity we had built, and they wanted to continue the value of that entity. So it, to, to us, it was a win-win across the board where uh, we were um, you know, ethically saying we're going to give a great uh, business to the purchaser, and, and to our staff, we were you know, able to allow them to continue to work. And an equity sale, I'm going to assume, is, has there's there's a whole bunch of preconditioning that comes up for that. You've got to run a very disciplined, well organized, well documented business in order to be able to do an equity sale. Otherwise, your really your only option is sell sell your accounts, right? Yeah, that's true. And again, the the due diligence and uh, and financial. Um, <laughs> uh, reviews uh, that went on were epic um, but the idea being it was it was the right uh, in my mind it was the right thing to do um, it was we had no issue other than time to do it because we certainly our books were in order and we liked uh, we liked how our business was running uh, but it, it certainly takes time and effort to do but in my mind it was well worth the value Amazing. 
So if you were to be recruiting some young advisors to you, some young advisors came to you and said, I want to get into the group, the group, I want to go down that pathway of the group business. What would your guidance then be as to what they should be looking out for? What would their yeah, what would be the main things that they should look to do? Yeah, I I don't think there's any magic to it. I think it's it's you have to be dedicated to your craft. So you have to have an ability to um, create the business base, whether that's having purchased a little bit of a book of business so you have some income to go with, whether you are a great cold caller and ability to get in and talk to business owners. Um, you have to be able to listen to them to find out what are their problems, needs, and frustrations, and then create a solution. Don't go in don't go in selling a product, hear what the issues are and improve upon their situation. Quite often you'll ask, you know, an HR person that's running the group or the business owner, um, how's your group plan working? And they'll be like, oh, it's great. It's awesome. Cool. The, the first question I ask is, what's the best thing about your group plan? The, and they, it throws people off because, you know, they're, they're always trying to have people are trying to sell them against something. So I come at it a different way and say, what's the best thing about your plan? What's, what are you are most proud of? And they'll start talking about their business, their people, their program, what's going on. And if we can then find out through those conversations, what are the real issues? Okay, so it's running well, great. How have your renewals been? Well, you know, the price has been up a little bit here and there. What were the most innovative things that you and your advisor have done to affect change on your price? Oh, well, we really haven't done anything. Okay, now I've got something. If your plan is great and I can improve on it, then I've brought value. So I want to know why you're happy because if I can actually make you happier, then I, I will win that business. So the biggest things to me of the new advisors are have an ability to get in the business, whether you're a good cold caller, have a little bit of a book, team up with somebody who has got some experience. But then when you do your business, find out what is the issue with your client. And if there is no issue, what is your value proposition to improve their position? And you'll win the business. Doran, thanks for this. It's been amazing. I really appreciate you taking the time. I'm looking for further encounters at the YouTube, but thanks for this. It was, was terrific. Well, thank you for your time. Appreciate it.